0: Welcome to the My Data Podcast. I'm your host, Molly Schwartz. And in this podcast, we take deep dives into the biggest questions around our personal data. All of us who are using network technologies are leaving data trails behind us. And this data is about us and it describes who we are and what we do. In every episode of this podcast, we talk to a guest who's involved in shaping the future of personal data management. So we'll get into tech, business, policy, culture, ethics, GDPR, AI, all of it. And we'll talk about how the changes going on in law and tech will affect you and your data. If you want to meet some of the people in this podcast in real life and hear longer versions about what they're doing, you should come to the MyData conference. This year's MyData conference will be in Helsinki at the end of August. And you can find more information about the program and register at MyData2018.org. And now for our MyData Minute.
1: Hello, listeners. I'm Sala Tuure, the website and design lead of MyData2018. This is My data Minute. Welcome. On the Monday of 16th of July, Helsinki hosted a meeting between presidents Trump and Putin. Apart from confusing the traffic, the meeting seems to confuse journalists and political experts of many kind. Privacy and data economy were probably not on the agenda of the very private meeting between the two. However, the presidents were greeted with Helsinki's Sanamat billboard ads around the city saying... Welcome to the land of free press! In Russian and in English. Privacy is crucial to obtain the freedom of press. Neither of the countries are known for respecting their citizens' privacy or giving their media the freedom it would deserve to work efficiently. Journalists need to protect their sources and whistleblowers need to protect their identity. People should be able to talk with each other without any third eyes. The MyData community is working for privacy as well across all these dimensions. We want technology that supports us rather than becomes a burden. We want ethical and legal frameworks where we can have better access to our personal data and the right to decide about its use. This includes the chance of not having our data collected. We deserve our lives as private as the meeting of the president. And now back to Molly and her guest. Enjoy. Our guest today is Elizabeth Renieris.
0: Elizabeth is an attorney who's based in Washington, D.C., and she works on issues related to privacy, identity, and collective consciousness. She also acts as the Global Policy Counsel to Evernim. And I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today, Elizabeth, because we've had a lot of people working in tech, but very few people who come from a legal background, and that's a huge, important part of everything that's going on in personal data. So how are you doing today?
2: Hi, and well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to participate in this and looking forward to my data in August as well.
0: How did you come into this kind of work?
2: Yeah, so the short answer is by accident. Um, As you mentioned, um, I am a lawyer with a legal background, uh, but I um, like to think of myself more as a legal engineer these days, uh, which is ironic given that I studied classics at university um, and don't really have a tech or hard science background. Um, That said, I've been working in sort of emerging technologies uh, since I graduated from law school eight years ago. Um, Initially in cybersecurity as a U.S. government attorney, um, I then relocated to London to uh, pursue my master's in IP and IT law uh, at a time when the first draft of the GDPR was emerging and became uh, enamored with data protection and privacy. Uh, So I practiced for about um, four years in the UK, uh, specifically focused on privacy issues with emerging technologies. Um, When I returned to the US, uh, blockchain technology just started to um, become more well-known. And so uh, obviously as an emerging technology lawyer, I started to look into blockchain uh, and kept two sort of separate and parallel practices going, one in data protection privacy and one in blockchain. Uh, And now, as many of us know, um, the two are starting to converge, uh, which is something that I didn't anticipate, which is why I say it was largely by accident.
0: Yeah. And so when you say you had this parallel practice going with blockchain, was that initially dealing with more cryptocurrency kind of stuff? Like what kind of things were you working on?
2: Yeah, so I've been working on blockchain related things for about three years now. And um, of course, in the beginning, no one really knew what it was. Um, it was mostly to do with tokenization of various things, so tokenization of assets or tokenization um, of products or services. Um, and at the time, the issues were primarily uh, commercial issues, so sort of commercial transactions and contracts. Um, but also regulatory advice and guidance. Obviously, um, because no one really knew what they were, we had to do sort of a sweeping overview of the various laws and regulations that might apply. Um, So it's been interesting to watch the space over the last few years um, and to see that that question is still incredibly relevant uh, three years later.
0: Yeah, it absolutely is. Something that I would like to dig into and that I think you bring up with the idea of having gone and done some of your school um, not in the United States is that I think there's always this real tension between tech and law and that law so far at least has been local, like it's confined by a place and there are different laws in different places, but technology is global. People can connect to it from anywhere. Do you foresee any kind of legal system that would work in which people could be truly mobile and take their identities and data with them anywhere in the world?
2: Yeah, so as you know, I'm really focused on data portability. Uh, One of the interesting things about the conversations around the GDPR, obviously everyone's talking about the GDPR right now, um, but not that many people are talking about data portability. Um, And and for good reason, right? It seems to have very little to do with privacy. So the other rights and um, obligations are very much touching on our personal privacy and the discussions around consent and what is or is not personal data um, are sort of prominent ones. But there is this sort of um, hidden gem in the GDPR around data portability. Um, And while it seems to have little to do with privacy, um, it has a lot to do with um, exactly what you mentioned, which is uh, reverting some control back to the individual and a more human-centric approach to our data. Um, Now, what you mentioned about law and technology sort of converging is a real interest of mine. Um, So I have practiced in various jurisdictions. I actually practiced in the Middle East for uh, about six months as well. Um, and what we see now is, while in the past lawyers have been able to maintain this very arm's length relationship with technology and sort of confine themselves to particular jurisdiction, um, they don't have that luxury anymore because the reality of our technology now is that it's, it's cross-border and it's usually global. Um, and so the technology borders don't obey our legal borders and our legal jurisdictions. Um, so you have to take, as part of my role as Global Policy Counsel, you know, everything that we do at Everyone and Sovereign is taking a global perspective and trying to look at where are the global floors and where are the global ceilings on every piece of law and regulation, and how do we comply with those? Um, And how do we make sure that a technology that doesn't obey those borders um, still complies with with the local and regional rules and regulations? Um, Something that's very interesting that's happening with EU regulation is, is, is this global forcing function, right? So one of the conversations around the GDPR being How does it drive the rest of the world? How does it drive their law and policy? And is there extraterritorial application? Or is it just the commercial forcing function of, well, if we're going to comply with different laws and regulations, it's easier for us to just meet a certain standard. Uh, So it's a great point.
0: Um, You just mentioned how you're dealing with these issues with your work in Evernim and Sovereign. Can you tell me a little bit about what Evernim is? I find it totally fascinating, and I know it's something about self-sovereign identity management, but I'm not sure if I totally understand it. So if you could explain more about what you all do there, that'd be great.
2: Sure. So it's important to understand both organizations. So Evernim has basically created a whole bunch of technology and NIP um, that enables what we call self-sovereign identity, which is just a new way of managing personal data where the individual is at the center of their data ecosystem, and they directly authorize transactions and interactions with their own data um, with third parties and sit at the middle where um, they don't go through an intermediary. They are themselves directly interacting peer to peer with all those other participants in the ecosystem. So, um, Evernin has, has basically gifted a large portion of the technology to the Sovereign Foundation in the hopes that a nonprofit foundation focused on standards building, interoperability, and wider community and self sovereign identity goals. Uh, would be the right sort of stewards or owners for this technology to make sure that it will never be captured by a for-profit company. And what Evernym is doing is building some, some user-facing products and services and enterprise-facing products and services that sit on top of that sovereign technology that are powered by some of that technology. So the idea is that whatever products and services Evernym builds are interoperable because they have that foundation of those wider standards that, um, that Sovereign is working on. And so a very concrete example um, of something that Evernim would provide is um, a wallet that basically lives on your mobile phone and helps you manage your identity-related uh, data and credentials.
0: Yeah, this actually, to me, this is kind of groundbreaking technology and it's really trying to break down how things currently operate in society. But so often in any time I've been involved with tech, a lot of times people see the legal department as the ones who are always trying to stop them from doing stuff. Do you find that you approach legal stuff differently or are you also treading that line of trying to promote innovation but also making sure that people comply with laws?
2: So I totally agree with you. Uh, I actually spent just about six months living in the Bay Area, and that's about all I could take because there is a bit of a hostility towards lawyers um, in the tech industry. Uh, And you're right, we're often viewed as the naysayers and the, you know, the ones who say no. Um, I don't think it's a tenable position for a technology lawyer. I think um, you have to be solution-oriented, but I think the bigger point is that because law and technology are converging, Um, the legal and regulatory and compliance decisions have to now be built into and designed into the technology. So the key is really to be side by side with the technologists and the technical teams and the developers um, and helping them make those design and engineering decisions along the way because the reality is some of these technologies have path dependencies where if you build them sort of wrong from the outset, they're very hard to course correct. Um, And the implications as sort of cascade throughout, you know, the, the ecosystem. Um, so one of the things that I do is um, I spend a lot of time, I, you know, I say I'm basically a developer by osmosis because I spend a lot of time looking at code. And while I don't, you know, I'm not a programmer myself, I, I know enough to be able to inspect what's happening and to, you know, examine a CLI and know, um, you know, what that translates into in terms of um, the actual activity transpiring. So um, it's really, really important uh, for lawyers in this space uh, to abandon what they learned in law school, right, which is issue spot, just spot all of the issues, um, and to add uh, the solution piece, which is, okay, spot the issues and then provide solutions. And what's important is that as a lawyer, you still need to bring um, the perspective and the introduce nuance into the conversation because, you know, developers want to build as quickly as they can, and tech companies want to move as quickly as they can. And um, they might not appreciate sort of the medium to longer term impacts of some of their decisions. So it's just providing that perspective and that gut check and um, offering solutions where possible. There might be some occasions where you need to say no, but the beauty of working with a team like Sovereign Evernim is that um, they really want to get the law and compliance and regulatory aspects correct. And they're really hyper-focused on Privacy and data protection, and 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 things that are in the interests of the uh, the individuals. So um, it's it's a really nice job to be welcomed <laughs> as a lawyer, and to and to have all my input, you know, welcomed and and taken to heart.
0: Yeah, and I want to go back actually a little bit to GDPR and how it has started in Europe, but as many people have talked about, there are people elsewhere who are going to be able to kind of ride the coattails of Europe's data protection laws because as companies develop services to be more transparent about people's data, there's the chance that everyone could benefit from that or could also have those services. When you've been advising companies about how to comply with data protection, what are some of the most frequent and difficult problems that you encounter?
2: So I think there is a tendency for companies to get too specific too soon. So they'll focus in on one particular aspect of the regulation, for example, the right to erasure, and they'll lose sight of the big picture. And I think it's important for, um, you know, in some ways, to let the lawyers do their jobs. So rather than, while the law and tech have to work together, right? rather than starting from what um, people perceive to be the legal conclusion, um, it's important to start from a goal, goal-oriented perspective. So what are we trying to achieve? And then we work towards, okay, now how do we best achieve that? And what are the sort of legal guideposts? Um, but I think going from the macro to the micro makes a lot more sense because the regulations are really designed to be technology neutral, right? They're not trying to regulate technologies. They're trying to regulate activities and behavior, um, so if we, if we are hyper-focused on uh, the weeds of a regulation without abstracting to what we're actually trying to achieve, um, then we're just going to lose sight, you know, lose perspective. Um, and I've seen, you know, a number of companies go wrong there. I mean, in fact, there were a number of companies that basically closed their doors before May 25th because they were so concerned um, about particular provisions in the GDPR that they perceived were, you know, um, that they couldn't reconcile with their approach or their technology. And from my perspective, you know that was probably an overreaction, and also, um, you know, not really in anyone's interest. Because as much as some people think uh, the regulators do want to kill innovation, my experience has been they don't. Um, <laughs> so uh, most of these regulations are striking a balance between um, achieving some kind of uh, rights and, op- and rights and uh, protections for the individual, but imp- more importantly, perhaps promoting commerce, right, and and striking competitive advantage. Um, And the GDPR is no exception to that.
0: Right. And my understanding is that they actually tried to design GDPR to be able to function on that macro level. So kind of saying these are the goalposts that you all need to reach. And if you don't comply with them, as will be determined when there are lawsuits, um, then you'll be like fined money or something like that. Um, So my understanding is at least that it tries not to get too micro and not to prescribe to companies exactly what actions they need to take, which I know can be hard for the companies from their perspective because they're like, just give us the steps to be able to comply. Do you feel like having now worked with the law, if the U.S. was to try to establish its own major data protection laws, are there anything that you think should be done differently?
2: The two systems are fundamentally different uh, in their approach. A key key difference when comparing sort of the EU regulations to the U.S. is um, the the EU takes a comprehensive approach to privacy, and that means that there is this um, all-encompassing cross-industry, cross-sectoral privacy law and regulation um, that applies, again, to specific activities in relation to data and is completely agnostic of what sector it's taking place in. Um, In the U.S., we have the opposite approach. We take what's called a sectoral approach to privacy. So we have regulation uh, around personal health data. We have regulations around education data, regulations around children's data online, regulations around, um, so within each industry or domain, we have specific regulations. And one of the things that's been hard um, in trying to reconcile some of the cross-border issues and some of the, the comparative approaches is this fundamentally different starting point. I think because the U.S. is now uh, reaching a, uh, a real turning point in respect of um, our personal data online, and particularly in relation to online platforms um, and uh, e-commerce and ad tech, uh, there is the potential for a more comprehensive regulation, at least in respect of that data um, in that setting. But I, I still think that we're going to have this... Um, we're going to have this ongoing tradition um, of these legacy sectoral regulations that are incredibly hard to uh, unwind, and maybe not necessarily um, in our interest to unwind, um, because there are some unique uh, differences in the U.S. in respect of the way our industries operate and, and our federalist system of government. Right, so there there are some some differences that uh, that explain why our laws uh, evolve so differently.
0: Right, yeah, so in the US, if stuff was to happen, it would maybe have to be specifically health data legislation. And in the past, sometimes health care has been more on the state level. Yeah, yeah. It's, there'd be a lot of things to untangle.
3: Hi, my name is Tem Ropponen. I work for the MyData conference in particular with our great partnerships. I'd like to remind you that the MyData 2018 conference is just around the corner. At the end of August, up to 800 people will gather in Helsinki, Finland. We're lined up for over 130 speakers in over 50 sessions. Half a dozen side events on the day leading up to the conference. It's a truly co-creative conference with people from all over the world gathering to look at the future of personal data from business, legal, tech and societal angles. As a listener of this podcast, you'll probably like it. But why don't you see for yourself? Study the program and get your past at mydata2018.org. We make it happen. We make it right. Now, back to the podcast.
0: I want to dive a little bit into your work on blockchain. What are some of the blockchain projects that you're involved in right now? And how do you see them intersecting with personal data questions?
2: It's a great question. Uh, So the one, obviously, that's most prominent for me right now is uh, in relation to Sovereign's particular implementation of blockchain or or Sovereign's ledger, which is a uh, hybrid public permissions ledger, if I need to unpack that a bit. uh, So so in blockchain land, we sort of categorize uh, these distributed ledgers according to various types of access. And typically the access is uh, breaks down to read or write access. So read being anyone can see transactions on the ledger, write being anyone can submit transactions to a ledger. Um, Sovereigns is a bit of a hybrid in the sense that there's sort of a path to uh, writing transactions, two different paths, uh, but I don't want to overcomplicate things. Um, what's really interesting about Sovereigns' approach to the ledger is um, it's intended to be a very light and thin sort of slice in the technology pie that enables self-sovereign identity. So where some solutions are putting uh, the blockchain or the ledger uh, very prominently in the middle or uh, encompassing most of their solution, sovereign is recognizing that for something to be truly self-sovereign, to move away from centralization, we really need to drive things into a peer-to-peer interaction, which means that this sort of globally shared, uh, public immutable ledger is probably not the best place um, to keep and store things. So um, for that reason, it already you know helps with a head start in terms of privacy and data protection compliance. The less you put on the ledger, the the, the more you minimize your liability in perspective of personal data. Um, so that is the approach that Sovereign is trying to take. I think the big conversations happening around other ledgers and blockchains that I worked with or I'm familiar with um, is the desire to Uh, Perceive blockchain as throwing out all the rules, right? So we have new technologies, we have new um, methodologies, we have hashing, we have encryption, we have various uh, forms of obfuscation or zero knowledge. And these things mean that none of this is personal data, it doesn't apply. And um, I think that was more of an initial reaction to the regulation. And that's sort of waning a bit because people are recognizing that we have new technologies that have emerged in the past, and it doesn't fundamentally obliterate data as we know it and, and, and the um, interests of stakeholders as we know it. So we're moving more into the nuance part of the conversation now, which is really interesting.
0: Can I also just say I'm really impressed because to me, your job sounds really hard like you're having like legal stuff is really complex and tech stuff is really complex and trying to keep up with the movements in both is just a lot to synthesize. Um, I understand that you're involved in some legal hackers chapters. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because that sounds like a group of people who understand what you're dealing with and are kind of able to act as a support system and find solutions.
2: I actually came to Evernym through uh, my work at the MIT Media Lab, um, where I met some of the Evernym folks, and that's where I sort of uh, first got involved with uh, some some of the Boston legal hackers, who are also very closely tied to the New York chapter. Um, Now being in D.C., um, loosely part of this network, although given my job, I've been traveling all over the world and probably spending more time overseas with um, international chapters. Uh, But the idea of the legal hackers is to bridge that gap between lawyers and technologists. Um, and to also become my Twitter handle is hacky lawyer to become hackier lawyers that are able to um, work in the way that technologists work while still maintaining the training and the and the discipline and the perspective that that lawyers and their legal skills give them. Um, so it's really brilliant. So many of these, uh, for example, I recently participated in one through the MIT Media Lab where we had a self-sovereign identity challenge. Um, it was the sovereign legal identity challenge, and basically. We um, crowdsourced a bunch of ideas for applications that you would build, um, for example, personal data stores or identity wallets. Um, we open them up to the community, and then the legal hackers and the lawyers in particular will either participate as judges or advisors, um, review some of the proposals and submissions, um, try and you know, poke holes in some of it, but then equally, um, the winners end up getting some uh, mentoring guidance um, after the fact. So... Yeah, it's a really great opportunity. I think there are a lot of lawyers that can be afraid of technology, you know, because often, like myself, we don't have the background or the training formally.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you would like to talk about that you feel like we haven't touched upon?
2: No, this has been great. I would, um, I would say in sort of this time of you know Cambridge Analytica and all these other emerging, um, disheartening stories, for people to stay positive and hopeful. And there are a lot of good folks and and really uh, bright folks working on promising solutions. But lawyers are very good at um, critical thinking, and they're very good at getting up to speed quickly. Most lawyers have to work on an array of things touching different industries and, um, you know, in their practices. And so. I would say lawyers should not be afraid to engage um, because, you know, often the technologists and developers themselves have, have the same concerns that we do. So um, it's really helpful in breaking down some of those barriers.
0: So it sounds like there are a lot of Legal Hackers chapters opening up around the world. Are there like regular meetups and stuff like that? There's
2: definitely regular meetups There are even global events sometimes. So we had a global hackathon uh, back in March and all the chapters would basically organize something on the same day. And then we'll liaise or coordinate on specific parts of that day. Um, So if you just Google, you know, legal hackers or global legal hackers, you'll find a whole bunch of information on the various chapters.
0: Do you know if there's a Helsinki chapter?
2: I would bet there is. Uh, I can certainly find out for you.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that'd be. (laughs) Yeah, it would be fun. I was thinking because I, to me, like I lived in Finland for a little bit. That's how I became involved in this my data project. And I feel like legal hackers would do really well there.
2: Yeah, absolutely too is you see law schools now you know teaching uh various coding classes or programming classes or a technology classes there you know i've um i've given some presentations on blockchain and the law so so there's definitely a recognition that we have to break down these silos um, in education as well and um we you know we're moving in towards a world where it's hard to just remain a specialist um probably good to go deep in some areas but having that sort of broader uh, perspective of the landscape is really important
0: Yeah, I would imagine. I was actually wondering if some law schools have shown signs of taking a hackier approach to law. Do you think that's happening?
2: It's definitely happening. Um, So my own law school, uh, Vanderbilt, um, recently had a conference uh, on on this exact topic of uh, breaking down silos, and um, they now have an innovation center and the law school is very um, open to and encouraging of people taking classes in other graduate schools, um, you know, across different areas. Um, and also kind of combining um, practical experience with, um, with law school itself, uh, you see it happening at, certainly at MIT and Stanford, um, you know, in, in some of the schools that are located in tech hubs. Um, but I think even more widely, and I think as we move into a, uh, an economy and an ecosystem where there are more avenues towards, you know, self-education and things like Coursera and access to, you know, micro platforms that have education and people take some of it in their own hands, I think we'll see increasing, uh, increasingly more intersection between the two.
0: And now you are also, you're a practicing attorney at a law firm in DC. Is the work that you're doing with Evernim kind of something separate and on the side, or is that incorporated into your daily, your day job?
2: Yeah, so my work with Evernim is front and center at the moment. Um, my uh, The law firm I'm part of in DC. I'm actually a, a partner or principal, as we call it, because we're actually a, a law firm and a consultancy. It's a very small boutique. There are three partners. Um, and all three of us used to be in big law firms here in the DC area, and we recognized a need in this particular industry in blockchain and emerging tech to be more agile, uh, more nimble, hackier right to respond to our clients uh, to be interdisciplinary and to be able to cover different areas of the law within a single um, use case or, or prospective technology. So um, it's been a very interesting I actually think it's going to fundamentally change the legal industry and you see more and more of these boutiques popping up. Um, certainly in the blockchain space, many of the prominent lawyers in the industry have left you know big, big laws or traditional firms um, to start their own boutique practices or just going out on their own. Um, And what's happening is this almost interesting phenomenon where legal practice is beginning to mimic some of the technology. So you have this distributed, decentralized network of lawyers that sort of feed off of each other and might share information or even work together, but in a more flexible fashion, um, and really mirroring the nature of um, of technology itself. Uh, And I know clients seem to respond and really love it. Um, I think that, you know, kind of traditional law firms really do have their securities practice, their commodities practice, you know, their tax practice, and there's very little uh, intersection between those. And again, this idea of breaking down silos, not only in education, but in legal practice is something that my partners and I think is incredibly important. Um, And again, the response has been overwhelmingly positive.
0: Yeah, that sounds like you're taking a more open source approach to law, kind of. What was it like to go from working at a big law firm to starting your own practice? I mean, that sounds like it would have been like a kind of major decision. What Was there any moment that prompted you when you're like, this has to change? <laughs> uh,
2: to be honest, I never felt entirely at home uh, in sort of conventional law practice. Um, and it's been some of my struggle because I really enjoy being a lawyer and I really enjoy uh, the issues and the practice, but I didn't enjoy the environment for it. Uh, and I often thought that, you know, maybe I just, it wasn't a good fit and I thought about abandoning law actually becoming a yoga instructor. Um, but in, in the end, I think it was just uh, the methodology and it was the environment and it was knowing that I wanted to be closer to the innovators, closer to the technologists, closer to the technology. And so it's in part what drove me to have an interest in in-house roles, but but again, I still want to re- retain that ability to to practice as an objective um, you know counselor advisor so uh it's been really liberating, and I just enjoy the practice so much more and I feel so much more invested uh, personally in the outcome you know of clients um, because there are fewer barriers in between, and so you have this sort of direct uh direct relationship that's really nice
0: yeah that's that's big congratulations, I also have to say like it sounds like you really enjoy your work and That's always an important thing. (laughs) I am wondering, you've traveled a lot. You've lived a lot of places around the world. When we're talking about having this kind of like global system for human centric data management, what are some things that you wish worked better when you go to live in a different place? Like what are ways that you wish you could take your data around with you?
2: Yeah. I mean, immigration is the first, I would say. Uh, I've lived in five countries uh, for a significant period of time and, um, you know, immigration and visas are probably the most frictionful process <laughs> that, uh, that I've experienced. And you want to be able, ideally, to say, you know, it's me. Uh, it's just, it's me. It's me wherever I go. But it's, that's not the reality. You have to reestablish you everywhere you go. Uh, so that's the first area. Education credentials is another big one. Uh, very sore pain point of mine is when I actually lived and practiced in Abu Dhabi. They wouldn't accept a copy or certified copy of my law certificate, my diploma. So I had to give them my diploma. And then they basically notarized it and stapled the um, form to my diploma and then stamped it with a big notary stamp. And so when my law firm asked me to frame my diploma and put it on the wall, I, I couldn't do that because it's been completely defaced. Um, So that's been a pain point. Security clearances, right? I mean, I I can't remember all the places I live. Sometimes there is no physical address. So my address in Abu Dhabi was, you know, opposite the second shopping mall on the left after the, you know, first bridge. Um, So that's all been tremendously difficult. And then another interesting area that's emerged for me recently are pensions and retirement funds really hit some walls when you try and... uh, try and either consolidate or move them across borders. In some cases, just losing them entirely or losing access, um, which feels incredibly unfair. Um, And so, and there are really interesting uh, blockchain and distributed ledger technology projects trying to address some of these pain points, uh, which are very promising. Obviously, they're they're longer term projects because, again, legacy systems and frictions in place are uh, not something that can be undone overnight. But certainly the ambition is is something to... um, to look forward
0: to. So I feel like such a big thing that people talk about as um, stifling innovation is switching costs, like when people want to do something else, but the cost is just too great to be able to seek out a better service. And I feel like there's nothing that compares to the switching costs of immigrating to a different country. It's just like such a strong deterrent, the amount of money that you have to spend, the amount of time, the amount of stress. It's really intense. Um, yeah so I also look forward to to having some good blockchain solutions. I was wondering how did you hear about my data and about the conference and what are you planning to talk about there?
2: So I heard about my data Uh, at IW, which is the Internet Identity Workshop, uh, which is a long-standing, I think it's been running for, gosh, over a decade, uh, important conference in the identity world, where I met Yogi, or Auntie, as he's known to others, uh, who is the organizer, I believe, of my data, very prominent in the personal data community. Uh, He came to a breakout session I was holding on GDPR, which actually turned into a session on the privacy regulation and approached me after and asked me to speak at at my data, which, you know, at that point was five months out. (laughs) So I think think I'm available in August, I'm not sure. Um, But I'm very much looking forward to it. I will be speaking on the legal landscape uh, six months after GDPR. But I think I'm going to take a much broader perspective as I mentioned earlier in the call, we tend to start with the micro and we hone in on you know, very specific points and laws and regulations and we lose sight of the big picture and we lose sight of how this all works together and where it, where it comes from and where it's headed. Uh, so my, my goal for, for my talk is to set, the, set out the sort of pillars of the legal architecture in the EU, explain how we got there and why we're there and, and, and where we're going in the future and what that means from a global perspective. Um, so I will talk about the GDPR, of course, because there's great interest now, but I will, I will also talk about you know, the e-privacy regulation, the cybersecurity directive, um, PSC 2 the European identity standards, and because all of those things work together um, or are meant to work together, I should say. And the more we can try and take a holistic approach, the more I think we get closer to the objectives of these regulations and the ends that they're trying to promote.
0: I would like to attend that talk. I'd be curious to hear, because also I always find it so interesting to learn about the backgrounds to legal systems and how things develop to be where they are. That just about wraps up the questions that I have for you. I'm really looking forward to meeting you in Helsinki. Is there anywhere that people can find you online and find out more about what you're doing, either on a website or on Twitter, anything like that?
2: The best place to find me is definitely on Twitter. I'm at Hacky Lawyer. You can also find me on Evername's website on the team page. Uh, and I am always welcome to folks reaching out with questions or interest in these subjects.
0: Awesome. And can you tell me what Evernym's website is?
2: It's just Evernim.com, E-V-E-R-N-Y-M dot com.
0: Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thanks. And I'll see you in Helsinki. Sounds
2: good to see you in Helsinki.
4: Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the My Data podcast. The MyData Conference takes place in Helsinki, Finland, August 29th to 31st, 2018. Find out more on this year's conference website at mydata2018.org. The show notes and video versions of this podcast are available on the MyData Global Network website at mydata.org. You can contact us via email at podcast at or on Twitter at mydata.org. We thank the Metropolitan New York Library Council for letting us record in their studio at 599 11th Avenue in New York City. Music is by David Cattery Music and Joachim Karud. This podcast is copyright MyData 2018. The MyData podcast was produced by me, Gianfranco Cicconi. The host was Molly Schwartz. Video and audio are available for redistribution under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License version 4.0 International. See you next time.